Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. I'm the only person I know who, if there's an open kitchen on the way out of the restaurant, I thank the cooks. I mean, I don't go person to person like Thomas Keller and shake everybody's hand, but I, you know, thanks right. guys, dinner was awesome. And they're, first, they're always startled and then they're happy, but they're startled because nobody does that. And the chef said to me, yeah, maybe like one out of 500 guests does that. And I just think that's odd. You know, like these people just cooked your dinner. And sometimes you've sat three feet away from where they cooked your dinner and you saw them and you heard them and, you know, maybe just wave and say thanks. Those are the voices of Andrew Friedman, author of the new book, The Dish. Hey, that's me. And guest host, Food and Wines, Chandra Ram. Andrew is, or I am, our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I hope all of you are doing well. Our guest today, and this may sound strange, but I'll explain it in just a moment, but our guest today is me. And I'm going to get right to the meat of the show because it's an unusual one and one that I think you all will enjoy and find interesting. As you know, if you are a regular listener, my new book was recently published by Mariner HarperCollins. It is called The Dish, The Lives and Labor Behind One Plate of Food. In brief, the book takes one dish at one restaurant and introduces you the reader to all of the key people whose stories and work come together on that one plate. In the restaurant, you meet everybody from the dishwasher to the server to the line cook, sous chef, chef de cuisine, and chef owners. Outside the restaurant, you meet farmers, a rancher, a vintner, a delivery truck driver, and a field worker. The story is told during a service with breakaway profiles, so the book also provides an intensive slow-mo description of how a dish goes from order to kitchen to table. And I won't get too much into it here because it'd be a little odd for me to say these things about myself, but we have had a great reception for the book, the best I've had so far in my career. Publishers Weekly called it masterful. That was very flattering. And in the Wall Street Journal review, they said that it takes the reader on an adventure. Can't ask for much more than that from the reviews, not from the book. I thought it would be interesting for all of you to get a peek behind the curtain at how the book came together, where the idea came from, what it was like to research and write it during the pandemic, and what the key 
takeaways are. And so I booked myself as the guest on today's show. Hopefully being my own guest won't screw up the time-space continuum like it would in a science fiction movie. I think the risk of that is pretty minimal, but if it happens, my apologies in advance or retroactively, whichever applies to you. To interview me, I called on my good friend, my great friend actually, Chandra Ram. Chandra is Associate Editorial Director for Food at Food and Wine and an author in her own right. She and her husband Jay often host me when I visit Chicago and they are also frequent dining pals of mine in that city. I thought Chandra would be a terrific guest host because first of all, she's smart and I knew she would take the assignment seriously. She lives in Chicago where the book is set and she used to cook in pro kitchens. Uh, so understands what I'm writing about uh, better even than I do because I have never cooked in a professional kitchen. As always, she stepped up and did a careful read of the book and we had a great time talking about it. I do need to mention that the picture for this episode is a little bit misleading. I repurposed uh, components of an old photo of us interviewing in person. We did not do this interview in person. We did it via uh, Zencaster, which is similar to Zoom. It's uh, an app that a lot of us use for producing podcasts. Two other small notes. We refer to a new modern Ukrainian restaurant by Beverly Kim and Johnny Clark in the interview. That restaurant is now open in Chicago. And this interview is punctuated with brief audio passages from the audiobook of The Dish, read by another good friend of mine, Chef Michael Lamonico of Porterhouse Bar and Grill in New York, and also a former actor, which is why I thought to ask him to read the audiobook. The passages are preceded and followed by slight pauses to set them off for you as we go through this interview. I hope you'll keep the dish in mind this holiday season for yourself as a gift for the people in your life who are interested in chefs, restaurants, farming, and the kitchen life, and maybe for a way to use those Amazon gift cards that many of you are about to receive. I don't think I need to say anything more about it, except that as always, our feature interview is presented by Sam Pellegrino. Whether in life or on the plate, every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and right here on Andrew Talks to Chefs. The perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. And now, here is Chandra's interview with me. Here you go. So welcome, everyone, to a turned table episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. My name is Chandra Ram. I am the Associate Editorial Director for Food at Food & Wine. But today, I am the guest interviewer on one of my favorite podcasts. And as a fun thing, I have decided to turn the tables on Andrew and interview him about his new book. So Andrew, is it awkward if I welcome you to your own podcast? Uh, it is not awkward. Um, it's it's a little strange. Uh, I don't think this has happened in almost 300 episodes. But um, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. I'm thrilled it's you doing it. And I'm happy to be in the hot seat. 
I'm excited and I should share uh, that I am also a Chicagoan. And so I uh, especially loved when you were talking with me about writing this book and uh, throughout the process and even when you were back to when you were pitching the idea to your agent and to publishers, because it felt like a story that hadn't been told before and one that needed to be shared. And I think in particular, this is a great time to do it, but let's just back up a step or two and talk to us about how the idea for the book came to be. I mean, the, the truth of the matter, and I say this in the introduction to the book, uh, is I had I dreamt it. <laughs> I was writing my last book, Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll. There's a lot of stuff in the second chapter of that book, which is called The Auto Syndrome. And there's a lot of stuff in there about a famous article that this amazing, mostly for the New Yorker writer, John McPhee, wrote called Brigade de Cuisine. And it was an article about this kind of rebel chef who he, you know, he used a pseudonym to write about him. That was a very famous article. McPhee also wrote a book that I've loved forever called Levels of the Game, where he takes a tennis match and writes like a point-by-point -point deconstruction of the match and uses the match as a way to tell the biographies of the two players, you know, as reflected mm -hmm. in their playing styles and all this kind of thing. And I've just always loved that notion. And I'm, I'm by the way, not at all comparing myself to John McPhee, who's a legend. I think it was because I was working on Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll, and I was, you know, I was reading that article over and over and writing about its effect. And and I just woke up one day with like, oh, I'm going to, I have an idea. It's called The Dish. And I'm going to take the cooking of a, of a dish, you know, within the context of the rest of a dinner service. And I'm going to use the preparation of that dish as a way to write about all the people in and out of the restaurant who contributed to it. I woke up with the exact idea that's now exists. And I mean, down to not that I imagined the whole book, but I, I thought I knew how it was going to end. And that is indeed the very last sentence of the book, which I don't want to say, but I knew exactly what the ending was. It's exactly the book I woke up thinking about, you know, and this was pre-COVID. Um, mm -hmm. It was funny to me because in the early days of COVID, there were all these articles about we need to start crediting the other people in kitchens, you know, and right. it's always right. just about the chef. And honestly, I had this idea before those articles, and then I was sort of paralyzed by COVID. I couldn't go out and, I mean, restaurants weren't open, and if I couldn't have gone and written about them. So, you know, in the middle of the worst of the pandemic, I, I sold this idea to a publisher. Uh, but to me, this book answers that call, you know, even though I had the idea before that little spate of press. Right, but it maybe reiterated to you the value of the idea. Very much so. I was talking with a chef the other day about uh, open kitchens. It's always amazing to me. So many restaurants now have open kitchens. It's not even noteworthy anymore. I'm the only person I know who, if there's an open kitchen on the way out of the restaurant, I thank the cooks. I mean, I don't go person to person like Thomas Keller and shake everybody's hand, but I, you know, thanks right. guys, dinner was awesome. And they're, first they're always startled and then they're happy. But they're startled because nobody does that. And the chef said to me, yeah, maybe like one out of 500 guests does that. And I just think that's odd. You know, like these people just cooked your dinner. And sometimes you've sat three feet away from where they cooked your dinner and you saw them and you heard them and, you know, maybe just wave and say thanks. Really almost no. Have you seen a lot of people do it? I haven't. I'm trying to think I once or twice, you know, when I was a cook in an open kitchen, 
maybe I made eye contact with someone, but yeah, you're there. And I don't know if it's the lights or the, the pass in between you or something, but no one says, oh, hey, I do remember someone wanting to like kind of come behind and be like, oh, can I see what you're doing? And I'm just like, sir, no, we have too many right. people walking around with knives back right, here. Right, right, right. But anyway, you know, all these thoughts and observations I've had over the years I've been doing this, and I have to, I mean, I'm as guilty as anybody. I didn't always do it. I didn't always recognize all these people. The only job I've ever had in a restaurant is busboy, so I'm probably a little more attuned than other a lot of other people. But, you know, mm -hmm. we all just lionize chefs forever. Nobody wrote about sous chefs and line cooks and dishwashers, you know, uh, delivery people. But over the years, I've come to know a lot of these people. And the make or break for me with the book was that, you know, there was someone who we were almost going to do their restaurant, but I couldn't write about their dishwasher for personal reasons. And they said, you know, could you do this book without the dishwasher? I said, absolutely not. Because to me, that's like the dishwasher stuff in this book, to me, is almost a justification for the whole book. It's so good. In Wherewithal's basement, at the foot of a steep and narrow stairway, stands one of the unseen heroes of Wherewithal's operation, Blanca Vasquez, a resettled Ecuadorian who amassed a lifetime of physical fortitude as a child laborer harvesting sugarcane and rice in the fields of Cuenca. Blanca has never dined at the restaurant upstairs and speaks only Spanish. She cleans what remains of strangers' meals from plates and bowls, glasses and silverware, blasting them with an industrial sink sprayer, augmenting its force with her own scrubbing with sponges and steel wool to erase any stubborn streaks and stuck-on bits. At 49, Blanca, wherewithal's dishwasher, is solidly built with tan skin and stands upright in her kitchen clogs. As much as the cooks, she has a signature kitchen getup, hair pulled back in a bun and framed by a purple fabric headband festooned above the forehead with a facsimile of a flower fashioned from the same cloth. The band, tilted downward toward the back, pins her glasses' temples firmly in place where they disappear behind her ears. She wears a loose-fitting blouse striped with primary colors, guarded from spatter by a thin white apron loosely tied so it leans out in front of her like a drawbridge. Blanca's hometown of Cuenca is situated in northern Ecuador. The oldest of nine siblings, she's been doing physical work since age nine, when her mother sat her down and told her that, once she herself died, it would fall to Blanca to support her brother and seven sisters. Her mother survives to this day, but has buried five of Blanca's siblings. When she was just 11, Blanca paired up with the man who would father her children. It's a hard life, her mother told her. That's what you do. By the time the man abandoned her, they had three daughters. In 2004, at age 32, in order to earn money to send home, Blanca emigrated to the United States, leaving her children behind. She tells me this and the rest of her story in Spanish at Wherewithal in the hour before service, as José Villalobos translates for us. 
The group with whom she traveled chose Chicago, and so she found herself there by default. That time conjures a mishmash of conflicting emotions. Abiding sorrow at not seeing her daughters for years, nostalgia for playing like a child in the snow at the onset of her first Midwestern American winter. Blanca possesses a vague sense of the wherewithal dining experience, that there are courses devoted to fish, meat, and so on. She recognizes that it's an entirely different style of food and service from the nondescript joints, the names of which she's long since forgotten where she worked previously. At home, Blanca delights in cooking, preparing Ecuadorian meatballs, fried fish, fish stew, mariscos, shellfish, chicken, and beans, especially white and canary for friends. In recent years, she scaled back, only expanding the time and energy when large groups gather for festivals or holidays. She's skilled enough that in Ecuador, she worked for a time in restaurants that served traditional dishes as what she calls the cook, meaning the chef. This explains something that happens during our conversation. As she describes the food she likes to make, she exhibits a telltale habit of professional cooks mimicking the repetitive movements grooved into muscle memory. Her hands dance over and around each other, miming their machinations in each dish's preparation. The hands flip imaginary fish, toss shrimp in a phantom hot pan, and shake an unseen pot of beans. Perhaps it's but a dream, but if presented with a chance to cook professionally again or somehow to own a restaurant, she'd take it. Immigration brought a demotion, from cook to dishwasher. When her most recent employer had to let her go, the informal network of local kitchen workers directed her to Parachute, where she was hired and then transferred to sister restaurant Wherewithal. So you were, you were thinking about different chefs and restaurants and dishes to feature. And how did you land on Beverly and Johnny? I, so I sold the idea during COVID, just, uh, it was a fluke. I had a getting to know you phone call with an editor. I had this idea just gathering dust, you know, at that point for like two years. And I thought he would like it and I threw it out to him and he loved it. And he said, write up, you know, a short proposal. I love the idea. I need something to share here. Um, but I didn't have a restaurant picked out. I just had a concept. So then this was all pre-vaccine. So from my home in Westchester County, I was asking, you know, calling around and networking and asking writers, you know, in various parts of the country or chef friends, like who, you know, who's like I called Hannah Raskin, who does, you know, covers mm -hmm. a lot of stuff in the South, you know, in places, cities I haven't even been to. And in the middle of that process, I did a remote podcast interview with Beverly Kim, who's one of the, as you said, one of the two chef owners uh, whose restaurant is in the book. And she was so open and so unguarded, uh, not to her own detriment, but just like completely unfiltered. You know, she's, I've come to know and believe she's a good person, you know, very well thought out ideas about hospitality and about the industry and about what needs to happen. And she just mm -hmm. lets it rip, you know, and, and writing a book like this, having done a couple of other books, I've had situations where people were like, I need to take so-and-so, you know, this thing off the record. And it's like, well, that's, you know, sometimes it'll be something massive about their life. And I'm like, well, that's not right. really, I can't really make that disappear 
or there I would see, I mean, nothing criminal, but like maybe I would see stuff, you know, that 20 years ago would have been okay, but you know, would get, cause somebody at least a really bad news cycle. You know what I mean? And yeah. And whether it was for an article or a book, like I just, I didn't want to have this moral quandary of, okay, these people gave me all this time and access and like, I have to write X and you know, Beverly and Johnny, and I don't mean this positively or negatively, but you know, they're squeaky clean. <laughs> like there's, there's no scandals. Um, uh, mm -hmm. You know, their staff really likes them. Uh, this is all stuff that's usually, by the way, anathema to an editor, right? Because people usually are like, where's the conflict? Right, um, right. You need you need like a villain or someone to yeah. react towards. But to me in this book, well, first of all, there's the ticking clock of their, you know, you're seeing a dish being prepared, right? So it has to get out of the kitchen on a busy Saturday night. So that was one piece of it. But um, I just really wanted to write about, I, can, I don't know, I mean, it sounds really um, Pollyannish, but I wanted to write about good people. I did. And I felt like there'd be enough conflict in everyone's backstories, you know? You know, if, you in, if you've ended up in a kitchen, you know, if I'm gonna profile eight people who are in a kitchen, probably seven of them are gonna have not like the most cheery, conflict-free background. It's just not how it right. is, it's not how it works. You know, so we, you know, I have the dishwasher, Blanca, you know, tells her whole immigrant story. And Johnny very openly talks about depression, you know, and Thomas, the sous chef, uh, talks about, um, you know, having ADHD as a kid and having terrible military school experiences. Uh, you know, it's all there. Um, so that's, that's where that tension came from naturally. And I didn't have to turn the other way when I saw, you know, bad stuff happening. And that was a joy. That was an absolute joy. So anyway, at the end of that podcast interview, I, after I stopped recording, I said to Beverly, this is going to come out of left field, but do you think you and your team might want to be at the center of a book? And we talked about it a little, and then I had a few Zoom calls with her and Johnny. And then I wrote an email. I actually keep meaning to ask, but it was either read at staff meeting or circulated by email to the team. I'm not sure which. You know, it was a letter saying, I'm gonna need access. I'm gonna need a, a several of you to like open up to me about your lives. Um, you're not gonna get to read the book or approve it. You know, you're not gonna be compensated. This is a journalistic exercise and I need everybody to be comfortable with that. And if you're not, please just like tell me, you know? And everybody mm -hmm. said, okay. And that's how it happened. Because Wherewithal was a restaurant that changed its menu every week. I did not know. I don't know if people believe me because I keep explaining, they're like, how'd you pick the dish? I'm like, I didn't pick a dish. I picked a restaurant. I didn't know the dish till I was on the ground in Chicago the day before I started trailing at the restaurant. I, I did not know what it was going to be. I, the only thing I knew was it's a tasting menu there. And I had said, I'm going to write about the meat dish, which was the last savory course, because that would give me the most amount of runway to do all these profiles I had to squeeze in, you know, during that mm -hmm. service. So that's all I, 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 it was going to be the meat course. Uh, I didn't know who the purveyors were. I didn't know who the farmers were gonna be. I didn't know any of that, nothing. And even to say that uh, because for restaurants in Chicago, so many of the purveyors are in, are farming out of Michigan or Indiana and our growing season tends to be a little bit different than the rest of the country. It takes us a minute to get to full summer. <laughs> right. So you really had no idea. You knew, it seems like you knew the web. You knew that it was going to be cooks. It was going to be servers. 
dishwasher. Um, did you know, you know, you knew farmers. I didn't know. Did any you of know that you wanted those people as part of the. Yeah. I always wanted to have the farmers um, always, you know, and when they told me the dish, you know, and then they told me the farmers, I'm like, I still, I think it was an intelligence uh, coffee. We sat down. They they were open Tuesday through Saturday at that restaurant. And I, I mm-hmm. came in Sunday. I met them for a coffee Monday. Johnny showed me like a sketch of the dish, like in his notebook. And he told me who the purveyors were. And I'm not from Chicago. Like he, these places that people in Chicago, you know, some of them are legendary, like, like Nichols Farm and Orchard, which Lloyd Nichols started back in the 70s. You know, some of them are currently very well respected, like, um, uh, John Templin at Butternut Sustainable Farm, who chefs love. And then some of them are newish institutions like Slagle Family Farms, which was the meat purveyor in the book. And they're very popular in Chicago. But I didn't know any of these names, if I'm honest. I really didn't. I had I didn't know any of them. I'd never met any of these people. And I remember Johnny was showing me the sketch and he's telling me who the farmers are. And I'm like, and you think these people will all be good for an interview? Because <laughs> no one had been approached. And... It had to work out. Right. So what if a farmer said, hey, no, I'm not talking to this guy? Um, it could have happened. It could have happened. happened. It it didn't happen. Uh, you found nice, uh, amenable yeah. Midwesterners. I picked up, yes. It was good to be in the Midwest. Some of them, it took a lot of chasing, which I'm used to. Farmers are all overworked and, and, and they have, you know, bigger priorities and they, they're constantly, you know, at the mercy of nature's time frame. But eventually I got everybody and everybody was super nice. I mean, they couldn't have been nicer. And some of them I, I'm starting to come to think of as friends. You know, I've, I've stayed in touch with um, James Lester, who's the proprietor of Wincroft, which is a winery in Michigan. Um, mm-hmm. I did, had no expectation I'd be able to write about a vineyard, but there was a red wine reduction on the dish made with his with one of his blends. And John Templin, actually, he just recorded an interview with me. Someone asked to uh, include a farmer from the book. And, you know, I've had lunch with John uh, in Chicago. I've stayed in touch with the Nichols family a little bit. You know, Smith's Farm, amazingly nice people. I mean, they were- So nice, yeah. All these people gave me like hours of their time. Yes, the Midwest was uh, a good place to be. Is that a cliche? I, have to, I guess our good good cliches I are okay. Mean, it's not wrong. And, <laughs> you know, you say it about the South too. People, I mean, you can find good people everywhere, I think. Although Even, if I'm yeah. honest, on the farm front- I've visited a lot of farms. I've never had a bad visit to a farm. Yeah. You know, if you're interested, genuinely interested, I think farmers are happy to share. I guess that's the other thing I'd say if there's anyone out there who's a writer, you got to be you got to be genuinely interested. I think, you know, people can if you're if they can sense you're not, they turn off and if they sense that you are, more often than not for me, you know, chefs, cooks, students, uh farmers, uh they're happy to take the time if you're genuinely engaged and have done your homework. Right. Um, so but you're actually no, there was, hear from them as opposed yeah, to I mean, hear yourself. The two things I was most uh, worried about getting, one was I really wanted to interview a field worker, not from this country. There's, I, I tell this moment in the book, but I was at, at Wincroft at the vineyard and I was talking to mm-hmm. James and his wife, Dawn, D-A-U-N, and um, he mentioned that there were these two guys who worked for him. They were from Mexico. And um, Don pipes in very emphatically documented. 
documented. That. Right. I love yeah. that moment where she's just and like, there's no gotcha moment here. No, right. Because I say it in the book and I, maybe I'm overly sensitive, but I don't think I'm wrong. I just I never ask about immigration on a farm. I think that's a really good way probably to have an interview end. I should say, I don't know, you know, John Templin's group looks like a J. Crew catalog. <laughs> I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, um, but that wasn't, you know, that's fine. But that's, you know, it's that's kids working a summer job. That's not wasn't going to be terribly interesting, you know. Um, right. And so the next time I was in, I, I reached out to them after the fact. And the next time I was in Chicago, I rented a car again and I drove three hours out to Michigan just to meet with this father and son who work, uh, I mean, adult son uh, who work mm -hmm. on the farm. And I got their entire story, their whole path to citizenship and their how they got to the U.S. And that was great. And then the other one was I, I really wanted to take a day with a truck driver. Mark, I loved him. I think he might have been my favorite in the whole book. And this is Mark from... Nichols Farm, who takes you on this kind of an odyssey, odyssey through <laughs> the, and it's worth noting for people who aren't familiar with Chicago that we have alleyways behind all of our buildings and that's where the loading docks are. And uh, it's meant to be easier to get to, you know, back entrances and that sort of thing. But you guys were really zipping in and out. And I felt a certain amount of terror that you would get blocked in on the alley because everyone who lives in Chicago, who's, you know, maybe their garage opens up to an alley has had the thing where you're stuck between two trucks and yeah. trying to get to a dentist appointment. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't like alleys because of the potential to get blocked in. I mean, the amazing thing to me about him and that I have to say for me, I think it's cause it was the thing I knew the least about. Um, I was like, I just want to go on, you know, this will, I should do this. This is part of the process. This is someone people don't know about, but it, well, we, we can divulge this, right? I was staying with you and your husband, Jay. I was going to say, so you're, when I, I did, when I made that, when I had that day, I was staying with you guys. What delivery drivers go through who are driving a truck as opposed to like a, you know, a car or even a minivan. But if you're driving a truck in a big city, if you're in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, there's nowhere to park a truck. The it's hot. It's a hostile environment, you know? And this guy's entire, I mean, the, the fact of his job, if it was going to be on paper, right. Would probably say, you know, uh, you have to get up early in the morning. You got to load a truck. You got to keep track of the inventory and you have to deliver. Right. But, the job is at least as much that as it is getting people to like do you a solid and let you leave your truck somewhere for a few minutes or finding a space where you know from past experience there's a very low likelihood of getting a ticket or speeding up uh, your weekly stop at, 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 at one building as he did by getting someone at some point to give you the key, the key code, you know, the, the, Right. Like the, the amount of trust that they have to yeah. have to, to give that. Yes. But, and he was in a constant, it was like a, a game of Tetris with other parked cars and trucks yeah. and the city of Chicago. And then in this kind of race against time to get everywhere you needed to go and to haul a lot of boxes of produce. It was amazing. We head back outside and around the corner to load the two-wheeler up with deliveries for the fourth floor. 
In our short time indoors, the sun has climbed higher, and vehicles of every shape, size, and color now clutter up the street. Mark spots a paving truck near the alley that leads to the delivery entrance and picks up his pace so he can get in and out before the truck backs around the corner onto Maple Street, where it might box him in. This is in paranoia. One time, he tells me, a Cisco truck blocked the alley. A pause for dramatic effect, then a shrug. They, the building's powers that be, let me in the front. In these minutes, more truths have emerged. Big city high-rises constitute universes onto themselves with their own fiefdoms. Elevator banks of varying efficiency, security protocols, amenities, if applicable, and workarounds. The morning gradually assumes a behind-enemy-lines tension as Chicagoans clog streets, fill elevators, and generally get in the way. Mark is on a mission, and superintendents, security guards, commuters, and traffic cops inadvertently conspire to thwart him. And so every stop on his route is a problem to solve, a solution to be finagled, a test of his improvisational skills, and the limits, if there are any, of his sprezzatura. Where to stash the truck? Which point of entry to each destination offers the least resistance? What to do if nobody's on hand to receive an order? At some point in the day, maybe owing to sleep deprivation, I fantasize pitching a reality show concept. Delivery Wars! And that day ended at like 10.30 a.m. I mean, he had one or two stops on his way back out to Marengo, which is about 50 minutes north west of the city um but he was on his way out of the city i met him at 2 30 in the morning and he was on mm -hmm. his way back at 10 30 like that was i mean the day was done basically and um you know so he also lives on those hours you know but the whole time he was completely relaxed and after each thing and you know, all of all of these stops would have just you know pushed me all out of shape and stressed me out we'd get out of the building and he would just be as casual as could be, totally unflustered, answering my questions. Um, you know, at one point we stopped and had a coffee, you know, and just any one of these stops would have, you know me. I mean, I, I don't like to be conspicuous. I like things to go smoothly. I, I've said this now in a few interviews, but there's only one job in this book that I don't think I could do if I were properly trained. And it's that job. I do not think I could do that just just metabolically i'm not suited to something that requires that much improvisation that it's I, it's like a reality show i mean it really was like you know it, it was like it was like a reality show where you have to get rid of all these boxes by the end of the day without getting a ticket i was so impressed that was impressive though i mean what he was doing how he was negotiating through the city i feel like i am forever turning on gps just to figure out where the latest round of construction is and that he knew that somehow like in his soul to just, yeah, well, Hey, you know what? Take Elston instead of Milwaukee today because of this. Yeah. I mean, he lived, he grew up in Chicago. 
And he actually explained the grid system to me. You know, he was like, I don't remember offhand. It's in the book, but it's state and something. State and Madison. State and Madison is zero zero. point. Right. And each block you go from there on, you know, in either direction, you accumulate hundreds in terms of addresses. Right. And Mm -hmm. um, I never knew. I mean, I know it in New York, but I didn't know that in, um, I didn't know how Chicago worked. There's routing software that a lot of delivery people use that'll like arrange all your stops in the best order. He doesn't use that. He does not use GPS. If I weren't there, he would have just been listening to the radio all day, you know, and just hanging out. I'm telling you, I was, I can't say it enough. And I mentioned this, you know, he did share with me you know, that some of his friends tell him he's doing grunt work. And I just think anyone who would make a comment, I don't want to come between Mark and his friends, but anybody who would make a comment like that doesn't understand what this guy's doing. Yeah. I mean, I I would think that a city like Chicago or New York or wherever might want to make it a little bit easier for people, you know, to, to drive trucks, you know. Uh, you know, tennis now, we have uh, electronic line calling. So... On the one hand, players uh, have meltdowns less often, but on the other, uh, which is good, but the veteran chair umpires like miss the old days when they had to calm, you know, like a John McEnroe mm-hmm. down, you know, they don't get to, <laughs> they don't get to use those skills anymore. And I, I think that dynamic would be similar. I, th- I don't think, I don't know if this guy would stay in this job if it was like, if there were like, you know, truck zones, you know, all over the city, I think he'd probably be bored. He sees the complexities ahead of him and seems to really relish getting through those. Yeah, I'm telling you that I couldn't do it. I, I believe I could be a cook. I believe I could wash dishes. I believe I could be a chef if I wanted to work, you know, like that. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't enjoy it probably, but I believe I could, you know, we go to a kill floor at, at the. Uh, at I was going to uh, say, like, at Slagle. You've, you've done but a lot I, of behind the scenes work you know you've written obviously like dozens of cookbooks with chefs and you you know i was thinking i was thinking about knives at dawn you're behind the scenes of the baku store and how deep you went into that and this is this is a um a little bit of a a rougher uh environment you are you you do take us to the kill floor. And I know I have been, I've been in slaughterhouses and I know um, it's one thing to be like, Oh no, I've worked in restaurants and I've done all these things. And it's another thing to walk in there and smell and see that. First of all, I should say that I saw, I wish I could remember her name offhand, but I saw a woman um, give a talk. I was in Antwerp two years ago for the 50 best. And there was a day of um, presentations and this woman had done this whole project. I forget which country, but she was Asian. But she had done a project, and it was all about making consumers aware of how we get our meat, you know, what happens. Mm-hmm. And and it was kind of beautiful. And like when she finally, the, the, when the meat, you know, because she had this, and she had this cow and, and it had a name. And, and then, and then, you know, she was doing a slideshow and then she goes, and here's, I forget the name, you know, but here's Daisy, you know, in the case. And it was like Daisy, you know, it was like the cuts like wrapped up in mm-hmm. a butcher case. Right. And, and, uh, and on the label, it had like the name of the, of the animal and people were actually moved by that. And, 
I am one of these people, and it was I felt this way before I went there. I probably felt this way after I saw this woman give this talk, but I do think if you aren't comfortable with that, you know, maybe you shouldn't be eating meat. Because everyone I told, half the people I told about it afterwards were like, are you a vegetarian now? And I'm like, no, you know, not at all. Not at all. I mean, I always kind of knew. I just had never seen it. Um, mm -hmm. That was the one place no photographs allowed. Yeah, that has been understandably, my experience. Understandably. Yeah. Understandably. This is how it happens, you know? This is how it happens, yeah. We don't, you know, steaks don't come from styrofoam, you know, trays no. and plastic and wrap. So. No, I mean, I, in, in a way, I was really perfectly prepared because right before we walked in, uh, Lewis John looks over his shoulder at me and says, this is in the book, but he goes, he goes, you're not going to pass out on me, are you? <laughs> if I made it this far, am I good? I ask Lewis John Slagle, my guide for the day. Lewis John is the sly 30-something proprietor who helms the current iteration of Slagle Family Farm. Just before leading me from his butcher shop to the slaughterhouse, he had glanced over his shoulder and asked with a wicked grin, You're not going to pass out on me, are you? I mean, I went to cooking school, I boasted. As macho as I could muster. I've seen animals butchered. Butchering, it turns out, is a Disney movie compared to this unceremonious snatching of life, the flaying of a fellow mammal, the stenchy eviction of organs that follows? I had never considered the brilliant job flesh does to contain the sickening niff of organs, blood, and feces, the life-sustaining glop from which our brains would prefer to feign independence. The biological bouquet of that room haunted my olfactory senses for weeks. Louis John doesn't say any of that to me. Instead, he just nods affirmatively. The gesture, though, is faintly marbled with bemusement, a discernible but plausibly deniable skepticism of this city slicker's delusion of fortitude. <laughs> but I wasn't traumatized. It doesn't smell great. It smells you're not used to. I, honestly, I didn't have any, I wasn't like, I wasn't sickened by it. I wasn't, I thought it was really, I thought it was fascinating. I mean, I really did. And it, I think an experience like that can leave you with a greater respect for the people who do that work. And, you know, certainly a greater appreciation for the fact that you're, this is an animal that you're eating on any given night. Yeah. I mean, you know, people talk, I mean, now everyone's, you know, so evolved, right? For, you know, uh, mm -hmm. but you know, uh, Thomas Keller says that in the French Laundry Cookbook, I think, you know, this whole notion of, um, you know, an animal, um, I mean, we say gave its life, but we take its life, right? Right, and, right. And, and um, you know, you should respect that. And I think respecting the people who do that work is, it goes hand in hand with that. For anyone wondering if and when they read the book, if I still eat meat, uh, with gusto is the answer. Now let's talk about the cooks. And I have to say, I really loved the the portion where you, you wrote about the Tuesday menu planning meetings and mm -hmm. which one cook describes as the best and worst part of his job, of those Tuesday meetings. And I could identify with that push-pull of creativity and then the reality of having to execute someone else's vision, perhaps, 
and maybe even the drudgery of a weekly changing menu and the the need to be creative every single week where if you worked someplace else, maybe you would get three more weeks with this dish and some time to think, you know, breathe, think, sleep before you had to come up with your next idea. How did listening in on those planning sessions feel to you? Well, the sessions were always cool, very calm, you know, because that's, it's just mm-hmm. either there, like there was the menu ideation set. I, so in the book, I show um, Johnny Clark, who's one of the chef owner of the restaurant, and um, Taylor Ploshahansky, who was the CDC at the time. And they're sitting out back at 12.30 in the morning, and uh, they're they're starting to concept the menu for the following week, right? And Taylor's sitting there with all the, invent- the ordering sheets of what's going to be available from the farms. Taylor rummages through the papers fastened to her clipboard, stops on a list from Nichols Farm and Orchard. Taylor. Peppers. Fennel is coming up. Beets would be nice. Corn. Johnny. I like that appetizer situation where you can just warm it up. People love it, and it keeps service so smooth. We have all those beans. We wanted to use some on the small plates menu offered at the bar, but we don't have to. We can freeze them and do a bell pepper-focused bean dish. Taylor, all the peppers are blowing up right now. I keep looking for Jimmy Nardello's and kale, dandelion greens. I know you don't necessarily like them, but Johnny, I don't have anything against them. I just haven't figured out how to use them yet. Taylor, Swiss chard? Johnny, lots of wax beans and stuff. Stewed wax beans are so good. I have this weird guilty pleasure of eating canned beans. Taylor scrunches her face. Gross! I never had canned vegetables as a kid. Johnny, I like the texture. I always buy fresh green beans, but I like that texture where it's braised down. My grandmother put a ham hock in a crock pot and tons of beans and just cooked it. Taylor, they do that in barbecue places. Johnny, with pan broth or something. Taylor, (laughs) we used to make a black garlic and ham hock broth at Blackbird when I was really young. You'd get in trouble when you opened the pressure cooker because it smelled like farts. One time a lunch cook did that right at the beginning of dinner service. Not good. (laughs) You know, they have ideas and they kick them around. You know, that's four or five days out from when it's going to be on the menu. Um, And then on Tuesday, when this is all disseminated, you know, they're they're all just coming back from the weekend. Taylor is Mm kind of giving each person, you know, their part of the menu to prep. It's that home stretch, you know, it's that it's like if anyone's ever done theater you know, you get, you, you, you feel good about stuff. I don't mean like Broadway theater. I mean, like if you've ever done like high school theater or college theater, like you feel really good about stuff, but no matter what, you're up all night the day before the show opens, you know, painting sets and turning on fans to like make the paint dry faster. Right, you know, and, right. And, and, and trying to master. Scramble. 
Yeah, no matter what, you know? And I think in, a, in a re that restaurant on Tuesday, everything seemed really calm till like 4, 4.30, and then it just seemed harried. You know, it all came out fine. Uh, well, you and I ate there that week. You know, it all, come, it all came out- uh, It all came out beautifully. Great. Yeah, so uh, this never this doesn't show on the customer side, um, but it it was it is stressful. Places that change their menu with that kind of regularity. I mean, uh, there's a you know Le Chateaubriand in Paris, which is very much the model for wherewithal. Uh, Johnny was very open about that. Um, mm -hmm. I got to eat there in 2021, and they changed their menu daily, which is unbelievable to me. And the wait staff has, because this is a different, I, this is unimaginable to me because, you know, I've been to France a few times. The first one was like a couple of decades ago. The staff has to learn the menu every day in French and English. Oh, I mean. So that is a true degree of difficulty, you know? Yeah, there's, there's presentations that are hard to do, you know, and there's techniques that require, you know, real specificity or real delicate touch. But... Mm -hmm. These places that choose to change their menu daily or weekly, I'm just, now that I've seen it in slow motion, unbelievable. It's just an unbelievable thing to pull off. But also Johnny and Taylor were both very open about this. They both kind of fed off that adrenaline, you know, of, of, mm -hmm. of okay, Tuesday's coming. We got to, now we got to work out all the kinks. Uh, Johnny uses that for, he says at one point, I like to put myself under the gun for like a civilian like me to watch it happen was amazing. It is amazing because I think, I think for a lot of cooks, that is the ideal that you're going to, uh, you're, that you're going to be able to create, be creative to work with the seasons, work with the micro seasons, work with whatever's happening with your deliveries with that. But it also means that every week you have to have a really great idea or two and you have to be able to execute it and your team has to be able to execute it and you don't get to experience in a single dish that moment where someone has made it so many times that it really starts to vibe. You are working with a team that's under pressure and you were when you were coming out to Chicago and doing this and I remember we were having conversations about, okay, you know, are we masking? Are you masking? How are we doing this? We were in the thick of it. And you were inside restaurants and inside the food industry at one of the roughest points in its history, certainly recent history. How much of that? I mean, you're, you're someone who is very much always an advocate for the restaurant industry and for the people who work in it, but how how much of what they were going through financially and otherwise during COVID was still apparent? Well, this is the really weird thing because we haven't said it yet. I'll probably have said it in the intro, but wherewithal, the restaurant in this book is no longer. Um, yes. The space, the space is, Beverly and Johnny own the space, so it could have been worse. Um, they're They're opening a modern Ukrainian restaurant there you know, very soon. And it's worth uh, noting that, that it's not necessarily that the restaurant wasn't doing well. It's because the city sewer line outside the restaurant collapsed and that destroyed some of their plumbing lines. And they were looking at the city saying, we have no idea when we're going to get this fixed. And this is going to cost you tens of thousands of dollars. So yeah. true. But they also, so here's the thing. And, and the book is told in the summer of 21. And on the night that I write about, 
um, July 24th, 2021, a Saturday night. They did 92 covers, and that was the biggest service they had had at that restaurant since before the lockdown, right? And Mm -hmm. there was, when I was there, that was when masks were starting to come off. Um, People were really starting to lighten up a lot. Uh, And uh, there was a real feeling of optimism, you know, actually. Like, it really seemed like they were going to make it. Like they had weathered mm-hmm. the storm, you know, and uh, and then I, I say this in the epilogue, but they've they haven't been able to figure out why. But you know, then the Omicron wave came in the holiday season uh, at the end of that year, and they never got that magic back. You know, they never reclaimed that momentum, and they still don't know why because they were able to reclaim it in July. You know. Um, and it was only a few months later. And then the death blow was that sewer issue, which was devastating. I mean, really, I I know you saw them, I think on the day of or the day after, but I was in touch. I was at parachute that night and saw them and I, they had posted something on Instagram about like, oh, we're closed tonight. We've got this issue. And I saw them outside and it was, I was just like, oh God, this is terrible. Yeah, is... no, it was it was it was absolutely terrible. Restaurants close, you know, most mm-hmm. of them. This one closed, I think, sooner than it certainly would have if we hadn't had a pandemic. They're not alone in that. You know, they're very inventive and they have a lot of passions. Johnny is of Ukrainian descent. Um, so I'm personally very excited to check out this restaurant. You know, he spent some time there this year, uh, despite the the conflict over there. Um, and he's very uh, activated and galvanized by uh, his experience there um, and in touch with that part of himself in a way I don't, maybe he has been before, I don't know. We Certainly we had not talked about it when we were interviewing for the book, you know, that part of his heritage. But I'm really excited to see, you know, what they do there. Um, you know, I, I, I had this fantasy that, you know, I wish, I wish the book had maybe come out, you know, six months earlier. I had this fantasy that maybe the book would be the difference maker for that restaurant. Um, I don't know that that's an insane thought, but we'll never know. Um, so anyway, but if you are listening, you should go to parachute and you should go to their new restaurant. Uh, they run really good restaurants. Their food's delicious. Uh, their staff is always, they hire very smart, gracious people. Um, and, uh, I've heard this from enough people who weren't writing books about them to believe that I wasn't getting some kind of a, you know, bespoke experience there. Right. You were getting a real experience run by genuinely good human beings who also I, you know, as a writer, I thought it was very interesting that you spend so much time with their cooks, with, their front of the house staff with all of, you know, the dishwasher, all of these people we've talked about. And then you focus on Beverly and Johnny towards the end of the book. And it's a, it's really a a thoughtful way to make this whole thing about that web, that interlocking series of connections, as opposed to just the chef. Thank you. Was that Um, your intention? Well, a lot of the or was it just how you block- copy and pasted things? <laughs> no, no, no. There's a there's a specific reason for it, uh, which which nobody's noticed yet. At least they haven't said it to me. There were a lot of moving pieces in the book because uh, I, you know, I had these profiles, and a lot of these profiles mm-hmm. I wrote in their own word document, and then I figured out where they were going to go later because, like, I wrote the profiles and I wrote the stuff about the dinner service, 
because this, have we said this? I guess we have, but the whole book is told during a service with cutaways to these profiles. And so I wrote the service and I wrote the profiles and then I figured out how to put them together. So there was a lot of moving stuff around and calibrating it and whatever. But um, uh, no, uh, what I ended up doing is, I'm loath to even say this, but I guess there's no reason not to. So the first person profiled in the restaurant is the server, Nusha. And then the next person you meet is Jenna, who's Garmage. The, the chefs and cooks we meet in the book are in order of where they are in their career, right? So it goes Garmage, line cook, sous chef, chef de cuisine, chef owners, right? That was the reason for the sequencing. Okay. Uh, because I thought it would be, I think the, whether or not people realize that the effect to me is like you get, you kind of are, you're, you're moving forward through the stages of a chef's career. There's a little bit of repetition of the garbage, but like she's in like her second restaurant job, you know, in that, mm -hmm. at the, you know, not counting stages. Right. Um, uh, and then the line cook has, you know, has a little bit more history and the sous chef a little bit more and then the chef de cuisine a little bit more. But then I kind of loved the idea that you meet all these other people first. You know, it's the troops, you know, you're meeting the troops before you meet the generals, you know. Johnny Clark is a native Midwesterner, a perennial seeker and a possessor of demons for many of whom Beverly has been the exorcist. He was born in September 1970 at the Christ Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio, the older of two brothers. The son of a graphic designer father and hairdresser mother, he was a gloomy kid, socially awkward, given to cycles of weight gain and loss, and a punching and kicking bag for assholes. Acquaintanceships were rare and fleeting until, at 13, he discovered skateboarding, which injected his life with exhilaration, a sensation of flight, a mode of transportation to unfamiliar neighborhoods and connection with fellow lost boys, some of whom he has kept in his orbit into middle age. Johnny's origin story echoes that of many late 20th century American kitchen grunts. Antipathy toward traditional classroom education, matriculation at cooking school, and early kitchen jobs in classical French kitchens. But where he's taken his career since those years represents a microcosm of the transition from cooks of the past to a certain type of modern American chef. Challenged by attention deficit, and metastasizing depression, Johnny sonambulated through school and life. Like so many others before him, Johnny stumbled into his chosen profession. When he turned 15, his father insisted he find a job, leading to a dishwashing post at Pelican's Reef, a Key West-inspired canteen up the street from their home, which he recalls as a Jimmy Buffett-themed place with starfish and shells in epoxy on the tables. In time, he gravitated to the kitchen, at first doing rudimentary tasks like, say, if service was busy, he'd line red plastic serving baskets with deli paper. He soon found his name on the schedule for cooking shifts during which he'd work the fryer or grill fish with scant training or expectation. If a fillet left his station with imperfect hash marks, 
There wasn't a higher-up or customer who'd notice or care. He worked at a series of local restaurants throughout high school, as much for their meager spending money as for the work itself. He quickly demonstrated a natural aptitude and fascination. When I do certain tasks, it feels like that matrix thing for me, he says. The science of it unfolds, and I get super into it, like grilling fish. I know when it's ready to turn what kind of tool to use for the best effect. The work also busied his mind, a common desire among professional cooks who also gravitate toward pastimes like playing a musical instrument that allow them to lose themselves. It was kind of like skateboarding, but I was making money, says Johnny. His father suggested cooking as a career. All Johnny knew was that he wanted to get away from Cincinnati, which for him would forever be haunted by the ghosts of his childhood. And so, after five years in various local restaurant jobs, he matriculated at the Culinary Institute of America. And then the, the wild card, which it's funny because it comes very late in the book, the, the dishwasher and the dish polisher. Originally, the book opened with them. Mm -hmm. You know, the book opened saying like, at this restaurant on this street, at the bottom of the stairway, Blanca Vasquez, you know, is wash, washes, you know, the dishes of people she's never met. It was something like that. That was the first paragraph of the book. Now it's like way late in the book. Um, right, right. But I kind of wanted end. to save it because it's not the most exciting thing, but I do feel like people listening to this show probably are mostly industry people. So I don't think it's news to them, but to people... You know, there's this line I've been using about the book, which is, um, you know, if it were a movie, the line would be, you'll never look at a restaurant meal the same way again. And <laughs> the dishwasher thing to me is a huge part of that. You know, people who haven't worked in restaurants, I don't think give a, give a moment of thought in their life to that job. And as you know, it's the most common point of entry for cooks. Like mm -hmm. even if they're not looking to be cooks, a lot of people take those jobs in high school because it's a job you can get as a 15-year-old um, or a 16-year-old, and they fall in love with the kitchen, you know, and then some of them become really good cooks and chefs. But there's that, and then there's the whole population, largely immigrant, but not entirely, who uh, that's like their job for life, you know, that's what they do. They're, that's their career. They're dishwashers. And, and you know... Uh, I don't think people realize dishes get washed in the middle of a service um, and, and return to the floor, you know, to the kitchen. And, you know, in the someone might be having their main course when you walk into a restaurant on a plate that you're going to get yours on, you know, 75 minutes later after it's been washed and sanitized and all that. But plates don't pile up till the end of the night. Restaurants don't, you know, a restaurant, they're doing 92 covers there. They don't have 92 place settings. Um, nobody does. So... I, if the dish pit goes down, the whole line can go down. If you don't have dishes, you don't have bowls, you don't have silverware, you don't have glasses when you need them, when you're reaching for them, you can't serve anything. And I don't think people have the first clue. Uh, dishwashers who do it really well are really quiet. Like, you know, sometimes they're right there in the open kitchen and people like almost don't even notice them because their back is to the dining room. It's just it's wild a... because, you know, like you can have a server not be able to make it in for work that night. You could, 
you know, if, if a cook isn't able to, to come in, other people can shift, they can do that. But if your dishwasher doesn't throw, show up, you are absolutely screwed. Yeah. And yeah. I think that it's, um, I think a mark of a good kitchen is one where in which the dishwasher is appropriately respected. And, you know, I don't know that civilians know the rules about putting a hot pot in the sink, about never putting your knives in the sink, about, you know, how you interact with these people who are taking care of your tools and are taking care of service and yeah. keeping all of that going. I think more than any other employee, the likelihood that a chef will try to take a dishwasher with them to their next job is, I think that's the highest probability. I mean, I know people who've had the same dishwasher with them for decades, you know, uh, uh, or a butcher, you know, a, you know, a staff, you know, if they, if it's a restaurant that can, has the budget for somebody like that. Right. You know, uh, at this level, cooks, sous chefs, uh, see, these are all people who want to be chefs mostly one day. If you're working at a restaurant like Wherewithal or Parachute, you, it's not just a day job. You probably want to be a chef, you know, uh, at some point in your life. So it's inevitable that those people are going to drop off. But, you know, people who have said, you know, I'm a dishwasher, this is what I do, you know, very often they are like the person who's with a chef the longest. I mean, I know so many people who've had people come with them from job to job to job to job. And again, it's, I'm not, but I don't mean this critically. I mean, if you go to a restaurant, I mean, why would you uh, think about all this stuff? Uh, you know, you're there, you're paying, you're a big city, you're paying a lot, you know, you're there to be waited on and served. And I mean, it's not really your job to think about that, but you know, this is where I feel like if you're going to complain about certain things, though, you should get educated about this stuff, like prices. Right, know? right. Everyone has, you know, theories about restaurant pricing, about service charges, about tipping, about farm to table. And there's plenty of debate. And, you know, when it comes to the farm to table part, like you can, you know, have a series like Portlandia, like totally make fun of it. But what I love is that in restaurant menu and server parlance, this dish, you could drop the dish, the plate on the table and say, it's steak, there's tomato, there's sorrel. Or you can spend 165 pages writing about it and really have us understand what's behind those three words. And I have to say this, reading this reminded me of when I was in culinary school at the CIA, having Michael Rollman's book come out, mm. The Making of a Chef, mm -hmm. and the detail it went into. And then at the same time, or uh, after that, Anthony Bourdain's books coming out and really starting to share what's happening here. But this, like I said, I just, I keep thinking of it as a web. I don't know if this makes mm -hmm. you Spider-Man or something like that. No, I mean, but I described it to people like, as like a, a wheel when I was writing it, like a bicycle wheel, you know, like mm -hmm. the dish was the middle and then, the you know, all these things were the all spokes. All these spokes, yeah. all, of these, yeah. all of these human beings who go into me being able to sit at the table and take a bite of food. 
Yeah. And we pay for that privilege, right? But I mentioned the pricing because, you know, I just look at, you know, this, this delivery person we we're talking about, Mark. I mean, this guy, that's just one delivery person, you know, and I met, there's a paragraph where I say, as we're there, you know, John, the owner of Butternut Sustainable Farms is making his rounds of the city at the same time. And mm -hmm. there's two Slagle trucks who have driven two hours just to get to the city. And one of them, the, the proprietor, you know, Louis John Slagle, who runs the company, it's a family business, but he's at the head of it. Um, you know, he's in one of them, you know, and, and, and this is, this is what's going on. Uh, uh, just to get the food there. That has nothing to do with the growing of it or the cooking of it, right? And just that, the gas, the time, the, that employee, right. the people in the warehouse, those aren't field workers and those aren't cooks, you know? But that's a necessary step and that costs money. We all learned about the, you know, the low margins. Uh, some of us, like you and I, knew this already. But in the restaurant business, you know, when the lockdown happened, and places were like, we don't even have a week's payroll in the bank. You know, that was a that was news to a lot of people. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I don't know what the number is. I feel like it's 30, 35% that prices should probably go up. You know, people I know who have made the leap, uh, you know, post lockdown, that's about how much their menu price has gone up if that, you know, to, to correct everything. People who balk at that, I think, uh, again, I don't say anything. I didn't want to write a preachy book, you know. I don't, I, don't con I don't connect these dots in the book. I never say this in the book. But, you know, there's these little things. Like Lewis John Slagle, it doesn't look like a small operation, but relative to like XL or one of these big meat companies, you know, it is. And... So just, he gave me this example, like just something like the boxes that he packs the meat in, you know, he's not buying in the bulk that a major national distributor is, right? So he's right. paying exponentially more for each box, right? And, and he's the first one to say this, that has nothing to do with the meat, that has nothing to do with the quality of the meat, but that's an expense. And he's not going to buy a hundred times or a thousand times what he's already buying because he doesn't need it, you know, but the, all of these things add up. Uh, I also talk about, you know, I didn't know this. Every meat packing facility in this country is required to provide an office and a landline for a dedicated USDA inspector. Um, like uh -huh. that's an expense. It doesn't sound like I mean, how much is a landline these days that probably barely gets used. Okay, maybe it's not that much, but, you know, add that to the boxes and then add that to the, you know, uh, how they're treating their soil, you know, and then add that to how much labor it takes to, you know, maintain uh, a growing environment, you know, that isn't aided by, you know, pesticides and, you know, Roundup and stuff like that. And then, add, and then think about, okay, so then there's a tornado, there's a hurricane, there's a late there, frost. There's, a, you know, a late frost, uh, a fire. Um, you know, I remember, I can't think of how many years ago it was. Uh, in Chicago, we had three or four days in March where it was 80 degrees. And it was so fun, unless you were a farmer in Michigan and all of your peach trees started to blossom. And then when the area went back to being March yeah. um, and started snowing and sleeting again, all that potential fruit died. And yeah. you see that there's, 
there's only so many, just as it is with restaurants, like with the case of wherewithal, with the farmers, with everyone, they're only just a couple of disasters away from not being able to pull it out. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I, I, you know, by by the summer of 21, 100,000 restaurants had shuttered in this country. Um, And it's hard to disentangle that. We don't know how many of the, because a lot of restaurants are perpetually teetering, you know, on the brink. Mm -hmm. So was COVID like the last little shove, you know, that, that, that ended it? Or did COVID take them from sustainable to not being able to, you know, keep going? We'll never know those answers, but it was a huge factor, obviously. And in in a lot of ways, I, through what I learned on this project, I'll put it this way. I'm at least concerned for our farmers as I am for restaurants. But, you know, I, 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 I hear a lot of people who run restaurants at the level of like wherewithal. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think Johnny and Beverly ever said this to me, but I know a lot of people who've said like, Nothing would frustrate them more than a customer coming in and saying, you know, how come your salmon dish is $32 and the salmon dish down the street is, you know, $23? And the answer is all the stuff we've been talking about, you know? Uh, uh, You know, you can have a good mom and pop restaurant that serves, you know, does, you know, maybe there's a good chef in the kitchen, you know, and, and they can turn out food that tastes good. It's probably not coming from those same kind of, same kind of, small farms. It's probably not being handled in as bespoke a way. Um, the restaurants are paying more for it. Uh, they're not charging more to put themselves at a competitive disadvantage. There are good reasons for it. And they should probably be charging even more than they are. Um, and that's something I, I hope that's something that this book illustrates to people, again, without being preachy, because I don't say any of this in the book. You don't say any of it in the book, but you, you, you show it. You share, you. you give us... You give us the background so we understand, hey, if I really want that special meal, if I want that bite of food that has been created with a very specific vision in mind and for which no detail has gone overlooked, this is this is what goes into it. And I would imagine most people could take the mental leap to say, this is how much it costs. But I'm sure if uh, any restaurant want needs people to go table to table and say hi, do you have any questions about why this costs what it is? I'm sure a lot of your your listeners would be game to do that. Oh, <laughs> to be the bouncer who, who's like, I'm any, sorry, you don't appreciate, get out of here. Right. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm actually. I mean, I've heard from some people who you know are restaurant people. You're a former you know, actual, you know, you've been in kitchens. Um, my friend, Josh Sharkey, who's the founder of Mies, um, you mm-hmm. know, he lo- he loves the book. I'm really interested to hear, because I don't know how much of what is in here is going to be new information to any of them, um, but I'd like to think, to use a phrase that's kind of become a joke, but, you know, I like to think that it'll make people in the industry feel seen. It's weird to think I can say both of these things, but I did write this book very much for the industry as much as I wrote it for civilians, you know? And weirdly, I think from early indications, both sides have stuff to latch onto in here, Um, um, you know? And then you mentioned Kinship Confidential, which I would never compare myself to, but... 
The one thing I will say, you mentioned, you said you were in cooking school at the time? When, um, yeah, I think it was, it was maybe after I finished okay. school, but. But, you know, there's this, as you know, there's this whole generation of now probably chefs, but, you know, people who were in, went to cooking school or were in cook, went to cooking school because of the French Laundry Cookbook and Kitchen Confidential, right? Those two books came mm -hmm. out within a year of each other. And there's like a whole generation that a large percentage of are there because of those two books. Like that was their, that was the, the hook that got them on the line. And I will say the, the people who I'd really love to see this book are people who are pondering a career in kitchens. Um, Cause I'd like to think, I like to think it would give them a sense of that life um, and the day to day. And I, I'm not in it directly, but you know, for all the, shitty press that's been foisted on the industry in the last few years. I, I do think it's in many ways a great industry. Um, I think it's full of a lot of good, generous people, you know? I mean, there's obviously bad actors uh, as we've of read. Of course there's but bad, bad actors, but it's also, it's an industry. I mean, you talk about how in any given restaurant kitchen, most of the people had a difficult time in their lives or something. And the fact, I don't know that we spend enough time talking about how the restaurant industry becomes a place for those people to carve out a life for themselves. Yeah, it's a safe haven. Accepted. Yeah, it's a it's a haven. Of course, there are bad actors. There are those are in every industry, but this is an industry that says, as a whole, we don't care who you are but we care about you and you can, you can come and just do your thing. And you can have come from no matter how bad your backstory is, there's somebody here who can relate to it and has experienced some of that and is here to help you help share the way forward. Yeah. hundred percent, you know, and, uh, you know, hopefully that all comes through, you know, but I, I'd like to think that a young person, pondering uh, a life in this world. I don't have the same, you know, it's, it's, it's 20 some years later. I don't have the like, I don't have the like uh, racy stories that, you know, someone like Tony Bourdain had. I'm not the writer Tony Bourdain was, but um, I'd like to think there are elements here that would show, I just think it'd be a good litmus test for whether or not maybe you belong in a kitchen, you know, if that's not presumptuous of me, but that, I think that'd be a re I think that'd be something I would be very proud of if that happened. I think it can be a litmus test, but I also think that very honestly that this is a book that would teach someone in culinary school or someone working in restaurants um, who wants to make this their life. It's a little bit of training on how to be a chef because it shares everything you need to think of that you need to you need to think about the guy who is butchering your meat and what's happening with the boxes and you need to think about the delivery guy and you need to think about you need to take care of your ecosystem and your book does such a beautiful job of opening up every part of that and so i think that it's it's a point of inspiration but it's it's also an education on on what this really is so I love. Well, thank it. you. Oh, well, thank you for that. Maybe there'll be a you know, 
one day there'll be like a video game of a food delivery driver trying to get through the streets of and alleys of Chicago. And so I hope you're I, a character in that. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Thank you for doing this. Um, I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you for um, inviting me on the show. I love it. And that is our show for today. Again, my great thanks to my friend Chandra Ram for guest hosting. I really appreciate it, Chandra. And I hope all of you out there will keep the dish in mind for yourself for holiday gifts and or for a way to use those Amazon gift cards that are about to proliferate all over the place. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you would like to support us, we ask that you do that by telling a friend, posting about the show on social media, or rating or reviewing us at Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which helps new listeners discover the pod. Thanks to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram, at Chef Podcast is the handle, and my personal handle where you can follow my writing, dining, and life adventures is at Tokeland Andrew, T-O-Q-U-E-L-A-N-D. Andrew, thank you for listening. We will be back very soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs.